All right. Book of Jude. There's nobody on this side of the church. Okay, no, 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 it's okay. I, I, I just, I just do this. Okay. No, 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 we're good. We're good. No, no. I, it's funny. I just read. Do I? Oh, there you go. I, I didn't know you were going to sit there. Okay. I'm already. I know. It doesn't take long. It doesn't take long for me to do that. No, I. We were just talking on the way here. There, I just saw an article this morning about how church after after the pandemic, and this is true of all, almost all denominations, but uh, for the Southern Baptist Convention, they're down about 20% for their Sunday morning services. But for Sunday school, they're down almost 30%. So, uh, and we're, even though we're a small church, we've noticed the same here that, um, like at the end of this hour, people will pull up, but we're just, for Sunday school, it's just a, uh, I don't know. It's across the board. People uh, not showing up for Sunday school. So, but all we can do is we're here. And we're going to make the most of it. So, Book of Jude. Book of Jude. Let's see what you remember. All right. Book of Jude starts off with verses one through two in our outline. What are we referring to, to verses one and two as in our outline? The greeting, very good, all right? The greeting identifies some basic stuff. I think the most important thing about the greeting, now you may think that the most important thing about the greeting is how the, the recipients are, are identified because they are referred to as those that are sanctified, uh, preserved, and called. Those are important, but I think in some ways, verse 2 may be the most important part of the greeting because they are given this blessing, mercy, peace, and love. And the reason I think that that is so important is Jude wants them to understand that these, these blessings that's been placed upon them, that I think becomes the attitude and the character, since they've been blessed with it, that they are to demonstrate and what the purpose of the book is, which we'll talk about in a minute. So I think mercy, peace, and love may need to be like circled, you may need to highlight it, 14 exclamation points after it, whatever you need to do to understand the significance of it. I think in the past, whenever I've gone through Jude, I've, I've spent more time focusing on the fact that the, they're sanctified, that they're preserved and called, but I, I'm thinking that maybe verse 2 is, is critical because you immediately go from verse 2, like here's this blessing, mercy, peace, and love, and then immediately starting in verse 3, what do we have in our outline? The purpose of the book, right? And the purpose of the book is, and we, we've, we've talked about this you know, a lot already, but he, he refers to them as beloved, and he says, I've gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. That was his original plan, but something, a need took place, right? It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. Now, I th the reason I think that blessing is so important is whenever you try to contend for something, that can lead to arguing, fighting, disagreement, and I think the blessing demonstrates the character or attitude which they must carry into the contending. So as they contend, what must they must, they cannot forget the following things. Mercy, peace, and love. That in the contending, they should be, they should demonstrate mercy, peace, and 
love. Because sometimes in our contending, even as Christians, we can forget quickly to show any mercy, peace, or love and just show more of an anger or a frustration or a disagreement more than showing that character. Does that make sense? So I think that that is essential here to remember. So he gave all diligence to, to, to exhort them that they should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. That contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints I think is extremely important. There's a lot we could talk about there, but we, we won't do that right now. We may come back to it, all right? And the reason they need to contend for the faith, right, is what's the reason? Verse 4. Because some people had crept into the church, right? Please note, where are they? They have come into the church, right? They've come into the church and they came in unaware. Now, why is that significant? Because they came in unaware, meaning that there was nothing about them that would would be like, "Uh uh-oh, there's a problem. They would have sounded like a Christian, looked like a Christian. Everything would have seemed okay. But there's one major issue. They have done what to the grace of God? They've turned it into lasciviousness and they have denied the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ, which is somewhat interesting. I, I don't think that this can be an outward denial. It has to be that somehow they're, den- they're denying Christ by, in a sense, turning the grace into lasciviousness because you think if they were that blatant about their denial of Christ, well, they couldn't have crept in unawares, right? Does that make sense? So I think they're, what, their denial is in their doctrine more so than an outward like, hey, we just don't believe in Jesus. Well, then how did they get into the church? Did that, does that make sense? That's the best I can figure. All right. Then that brings us to where we have been, which is what? What's the next part of our outline? The remembrance. The next section we are referring. Now, I know I deviate from every outline available pretty much in every book at this point. But I think that at this point, he, Jude takes a weird kind of, he comes up with a weird way, a, a weird strategy in how to deal with this, all right? Okay, I want you guys to contend for the faith, and the way I'm going to get you to contend for the faith is I'm going to spend the next, a number of verses here, trying to remind you of some things. So his way of exhorting them or, or getting them motivated to contend is to remind them of a number of things, and that's what we're going to spend the time working on. We're going to look at two today, all right? We've kind of mentioned both of them already, but today we're really going to spend some time trying to take one of these, well, two of these apart, all right? So let's start right here. What's the first thing he wants to remind them of? We start in verse five. I will therefore put you in remembrance. Now, please note, I will therefore, because these ungodly men have crept into the church, right? Because they've turned the Grace of God into lasciviousness, and they've denied God. Because of that, I'm going to put you to the the people who are that he is writing to. I'm going to put you in remembrance, and he wants them. And somehow he believes that this reminder is going to motivate them to contend for the faith. Now, what's the first reminder? All right, yes, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, now which is interesting, seemingly to imply that they had what? They had forgotten. Somehow they had forgotten. Now, I don't know if they had forgotten. This is very important. 
You can know something but not know something. I know that sounds like a contradiction. In the sense that you can know something theoretically, right? Okay, yeah, I know that happened. I know that happened a long time ago. But in practice, that memory is not having any impact on your present. So you can know something without actually demonstrating that you know it. So in this particular case, he's going to do everything in their power to take this, this memory and make it practical to what they are currently facing. And he wants them to remember how the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed them that believed not. Now, we're going we're gonna to go through a little bit of this here, and I've got some notes here that we're going to work through. But before we do that, I, th- I think the question we have to ask at this point is this. All right, he's reminding them of this truth. This is a truth that they had already known, but they are forgotten. I think it's a truth that if anyone's ever read their Bible, probably there's people who haven't even read their Bible, who's probably familiar with this basic story of what happened to Israel after they were delivered from bondage from Egypt. I think this is probably something that you could hand out a test and most people in a church would probably get close to getting it right. So the question is, how is this reminder supposed to motivate them to contend with the people who have now crept into the church? What is it about this reminder that should, should supposed to motivate them? Because it's easy just to read it and go, okay, well, yeah, remember what happened to, to Israel? Okay, now next. But it's supposed to have a profound impact on them for them like, whoa, you remember what happened to Israel? We got to go contend. So what is it, how is this supposed to motivate them? Because either is it, let me ask it this way. Do you think that this is a warning for them? Or do you think it's a, like a, it's warning them like, like you better contend for the faith. Or is it more of almost a plea, like you should want to contend for the faith because look what happens to people who, are, who receive God's judgment. In other words, is this supposed to motivate them like, you don't want this to happen to these people? You don't want this judgment to happen to these people? Or is it somehow, hey, you better contend or look what's going to happen to you? How, how do you think we should read this? I know we're, we're, there's a lot of people gone, but... Well, how do you think we should read this? Hey, you better do it or you're going to be judged. Or, hey, you don't want these other people to be judged. What, what, what's the motivation here? Because I know it's easy to read right through it, but we can't, we can't just read right past it or there's no point in doing what we're doing here, right? We can, we, we're going to take it serious. Oh, so you think this is a warning to the people he's writing to that you better continue, continue in the faith or this is what will happen to you. So more of a warning to them. Okay. So, right. So you think it's a warning to the people he's writing to? Like, hey, this, you better continue? All right. So we've got that approach. What do we think? Okay. Um, but to, to whom? I think it probably originally was to them, but it applies to all of us. 
Okay? Right. But, but do you think it's, it's, to the people he's writing to, do you think it's like, hey, guys, you better do this or you're going to be judged? Or do you think he's saying, hey, you want to contend because this is what's going to happen to those people who came in? Do you, do you see that I'm trying to draw a distinction there? Right, but do you see the distinction I'm making? Hey, because it's one thing to walk up to someone and go, hey, you better contend for the faith or you're going to get destroyed just like the people in Israel versus, hey, you better contend because that guy back there is going to get destroyed like the people in Israel. Do you see the difference? I'm putting it either on you, you better do it or you're going to be destroyed or, hey, you want to contend because that guy back there is going to get destroyed like the people in Israel. It's to motivate you to go contend with him or is it just a warning that, hey, I better do this or I'm going to be destroyed? Go continue. In other words, you need to have mercy and love because he's going to end up judged. Versus, man, am I contending enough? Or if I don't contend, I'm going to get in, in trouble. Do you see the difference there? I don't know if everyone's catching the difference. I'm trying to draw a distinction here. Because I think we have a tendency to read this like, oh, I better, I, better, I better contend, or, or I better continue in the faith, or I better do this, or I'm going to be in trouble. I think he, the, the whole point is, remember the purpose of the book? Verse 3, I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. It was needful for me to write unto you, and that next word, exhort you to contend for the faith. Remember, the people he's writing to, what has he already said about the people he's writing to? They're sanctified and preserved. So clearly he's not indicating that they're going to be destroyed. The people who feel like they're going to be destroyed are whom? The people who crept in. And now I'm trying to motivate you to go contend with that person. So we'll use Seth as the one who crept in, since he's back there, you know, hiding, right? He crept in. Now I've got to get you guys to go contend with him. And why do I want you to contend with him? Because we want to prove that he's wrong, because we hate him, because he's a jerk. All those things may be true, so he won't be destroyed. That's the way I am, am, am seeing this. Now, not all, not, not all commentaries agree with me here, which is, you know, not uncommon. But I just think that I, that's why I'm so focused on verse 2. Mercy, peace, and love... I think this is the character that which they are to take with it. Does that make sense? I feel like that I'm getting some looks of people like, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. Right. Because the people he's writing to, he's already said that they're preserved. Right? So it'd be weird to say, hey, Lydia, you're preserved. You're called. But you better contend or you're going to get destroyed. And you better continue in the faith or you... That seems weird, right? You're preserved. So that means you're going to do what? You're going to continue in the faith, right? That doesn't mean necessarily you're going to do what? Contend. That's why he's exhorting them. to. He's not exhorting them. 
He, he's, the exhorting seems to be to, to, to continue or to, uh, to contend. That seems to be the motivating factor. Does that, does that make some kind of sense? All right, we'll see. I'll wait till all the emails come in of people disagreeing with me. But, okay, but we'll, we'll see, all right? I, I, think, I think that's the way I'm going to approach it. But we'll see. Maybe it'll fall apart. That, that idea may fall apart. Because right now, that's just the first remembrance, yes? So remember, though, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believe not. The believe not, to me, goes back to the people who crept in unawares, who denies the Lord, yes? Wouldn't that be the ones it would be describing? They're denying him in their, in their doctrine of, of turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Because if they denied him outright, then you would think they couldn't have crept in unawares. Unless they lied, and they, they said they believed in the Lord, came into the church, and then were denying him in a secretive way. I mean, it's your only option is there has to be their doctrine or unless they're doing it in a secret way. Right? Because the crept in unawares means they got in and nobody noticed it. You would think you would be able to notice someone who like, hey, I don't even believe in Jesus. Okay, well, that's kind of odd. How, how, why are you in our church, right? Why are you a member of our church? You can visit, obviously. But does that make sense? So I'm taking the believe not as referring to those men and, it's, and, I, and he's trying to put the people in remembrance to contend with those because they're going to be destroyed. Does that make sense? That, that's the way I'm approaching it, right? I'll read from one commentary, all right? Uh, both Paul and then obviously here in Jude, uh, they, uh, well, this refers to Paul being the author of Hebrews, but okay, but Paul and the author of Hebrews used the experience of Israel to illustrate important spiritual truths. I think we, can, we see that in 1 Corinthians 10. We see that in Hebrews 3 through 4. I think that, that happens numerous times. The notion, uh, the nation, I should say, was delivered from Egypt but the power of God, by the power of God and brought to the border of the promised land. But the people were afraid and did not have faith to enter into and possess the land. We read about this in Numbers 13 through 14. There's a part of me who wants to go back and read the whole story, but I don't want to do that right now. Moses, Joshua, and Caleb tried to encourage the people to obey God by faith, but the people refused. In fact, the leaders of the tribes even wanted to organize and go back to Egypt to the very place of bondage. This was rebellion against the will and word of God, and God cannot tolerate rebellion. As a result, we all know what happened. As a result, everyone in the camp 20 years and older was going to happen. What was going to happen to them? They were all going to die at some time in the next 40 years. So everyone 20 and older was going to be dead within 40 years of the entire nation because of their refusal to go in. They rebelled. They, they basically, in a sense, they denied God because they turned on God and they were going to organize and go back to Egypt. They were like, you know what? We don't care what God wants. We don't care what God tells us to do. We're going back to Egypt. No one can stop us. And instead, they wandered around for how many years? 40 years, and they died. Pretty horrible thing, right? Their unbelief led to their extermination. Keep in mind that Jude was using a historical event as an illustration. 
We must not press every detail. The entire nation was delivered from Egypt, but that does not mean that each individual was personally saved through faith in the Lord. The main point of the account is that privilege, the privileges bring responsibilities, and God cannot lightly pass over the sins of his people if any of Jude's readers, now, now, this, see, now this is how they are going to approach this. If any of Jude's readers, so the ones he's writing to, if they dared to follow the false teachers, they would be disciplined by God. That's how they interpret it. That this is a warning to the readers. Hey, if you, if you follow the false teachers, you're going to be destroyed. Well, I would think so. Yes, I would think. And because especially considering that he just said they're preserved. So I, I, and that's how most commentaries approach it, that he's warning the readers, you're going to be destroyed. And I'm thinking, no, the, the people going to be destroyed here are going to be the false teachers. So the, he's used, he was reminding them of what happens to people who deny God and who has denied God, according to the very text that we're reading. The people who crept in. It's right there in verse 4, is it not? So it just seems like he's trying to exhort them, to, to remind them of what happens to people. Right? Think of it, I mean, there, there's got to be some illustration I can use that will, that will work here. Um, it's almost like, Hey, it's like if, if I have 10 people here and like, okay, you don't drink, you have nothing to do with alcohol, right? But I want to convince you of the dangers of alcohol because there's a high probability you may know someone who's drinking and I want you to contend with them to keep them from destroying themselves, right? That, that's in the same way. Hey, guys, these people who came in, they deny, they deny Christ. They deny the Lord. They, they're turning God's grace into lasciviousness. I'm, he, he doesn't, I mean, if you look at it, if you look at verse 1 and 2 and 3, he doesn't seem to be warning them not to follow the false teachers. He seems to be trying to get them to contend with the false teachers, right? Is that, is that not what we read? Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you to the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. He doesn't say that I, I'm, I'm trying to warn you not to turn from the faith. No, he's trying to get them to... The, the argument is that the people he's writing to already have the faith. Yes? He's trying to get them to contend for it. I think, I think, this, is, I think this is the way we have to approach this letter because this is true in every generation of, Christ, of Christianity. You can have a hundred people sitting in a church, right? How many do you think are earnestly going to do all the work that's required to be able to earnestly contend for the faith? You're talking a small percentage. One, you've got people's personalities. They don't want to contend with anything. They don't want to argue. They don't want to, I'm going to lose a friend. They, they just don't want to do anything, all right? So you've got the people who just, I just want to get along, you know, so they're, they're not going to contend. Then you've got others who say, may, I may want to contend, but you're telling me that I've got to understand this, and I've got to read this, and I've got to study, and I'm not going to do any of that. So they're not going to contend. And then you've got others who are like, I'll fight anybody, and you've got to get those people to say, how about mercy and love? So you have a, within a church, you've got people who will contend the wrong way. 
the people who don't want to do the work to contend, and the other ones was like, I just want to get along with everyone. So that means who's left to contend in a church? Very few. Because typically the people who contend typically contend in the wrong way. They just fight and argue with everybody, so that doesn't work. I just, I just don't see how this is a warning to, hey guys, you don't follow these false teachers, you're, you're going to be destroyed. I, I'm, I still see some looks like maybe people don't agree with me. Do, 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 go ahead. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, exactly, right. Uh, yet there's no way. Okay, I, at least someone is agreeing with me. Good, good. I hope somebody is, okay? Because I just don't, I, I just, I, I've kept reading commentaries this week, and I'm like, I, they're approaching this like, and I listen to a lot of sermons on it, and it's pretty much like, hey, guys, don't follow the false teachers, or you're going to be destroyed. And I'm like, I don't think that's what's happening here. It's like, go contend. They're going to be destroyed. And do we want them to be destroyed? No. Because we, should, we have been blessed with what three things? Mercy, peace, and love. So what should we want to demonstrate to those? Mercy, peace, and love. And what should mercy, peace, and love motivate us to do? Contend. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. So, I, and I think, yeah, I think, but I'm hoping by the time I'm done with the letter, I can prove my point here. But I just want to establish this right here because I, when I, I when I first gave, when we, last week we talked about the reminder, it just, it didn't dawn on me, wait a minute, I think a lot of people may misunderstand this reminder. I just assumed everybody would be like, oh, he's reminding these people. They need to contend for those, to, with those people because those people are going to be destroyed. And I think sometimes we see the, I don't think, remember, it's a reminder. It's not a warning, right? In fact, I tried to, I tried, I tried to play a trick on everyone. I was wanting someone to say that because I immediately said, who's he warning? Remember when I first asked the question and I was wanting someone to go, it's a reminder, not a warning. The reminder is, right? This is what happened to them. You don't want it to happen to the people present in our church. That, that's the way I'm going to read it. And if I'm wrong, well, it'll be the first time. No, I'm joking. Okay, I'm joking, all right? Ever, ever, is everybody okay with that? All right, because, I mean, because what he's demonstrating is that there, and, and why, why would he pick the nation of Israel? Why, why do you think he would start with the first reminder, I was going to say warning to see if anybody would raise their hand this time, all right? Why do you think with the first reminder, he starts with the nation of Israel? Why do you think he would start there? Because Israel works really good for this illustration. Here's the reason why. You have an entire nation of people, right? Yes? What do you have as a church? A group of people. Correct? And the nation of Israel. Was everyone a believer? No, were there some of those who obviously 
rebelled against God, turned against God, and in fact tried to get other people to go against God? Yes. Okay. So that's a perfect illustration for what Judas tried. He's writing to a church, and he's already identified that there's some people in the church who are, in a sense, are wanting them to go back to where? To bondage, correct? Because they're taking God's grace and turning it into what? Lasciviousness. God's grace should move us away from the very things that enslaves us. He's trying to say, he's, he's using it, it. I mean, the, the illustration, the contrast here is perfect. They were set free from bondage from Egypt. All right, we're free. Okay, good, good. Oh, wait, 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 wait. God wants us to do what? <laughs> Forget that garbage. I'm going back. I'm going back to bondage. Well, now here's people who came into the church and said, hey, you've been, you've been given the grace of God, which will, that should lead you away from sin, uh, but you don't, need, you don't need to do that because really what it is is a license to go back to that sin and even enjoy it more. So he's, they're leading them right back to Egypt. They're going to lead them right back to Egypt. Well, those people who want everyone to go to Egypt, they're the ones who are going to end up being destroyed. Right? So he's like, hey, you've got to contend with these people or they're going to walk right back to their own destruction. Help them out. It's, it's a reminder to exhort you not to let these people, in a sense, refuse to move forward so they're going to wander around for 40 years and die. That, that's the situation. Does that make sense? All right, now. Okay, I think, I think we've did a decent job on that one. Agreed? All right, now the next one's going to take 37 years. All right, here we go. Oh, boy. All right. Everybody ready? Verse 6. So we go from Israel. And then what happens in verse 6? We go to angels. Angels. That's where we go. You talk about a jump, right? We go from Israel to angels. All right. Mm, this, this one's going to cause massive headaches. Okay. All right. I hope everyone's ready. We're, we're going to do a lot. We're going to do a lot here to try to work through this. First of all, before we get caught up in all of the controversy, before we get all confused, because we're going to get very confused in the next little while, let's just try to set aside all of the confusion and all the questions and try to understand basically what Jude is attempting to do. So he used Israel. Now he's going to use angels. Whoever these angels are, what, do, what happens to them? So we started the first part of the verse. We have angels. Skip all the middle part. Skip the middle part. What happens to the angels? All right. They end up in everlasting chains unto the judgment of the great day. So whoever these angels are, they go from angels, right? Here they are to now they are what? In chains. Do you see the correlation? Israel had been set free from what? Bondage, chains. However, they ended up wanting to go back to Egypt and were destroyed. Here are angels who obviously would be free, correct? Who end up where? In chains. I think there's an interesting play on words here, right? So these angels end up in chains. They end up locked up. What in the world is going on? So what's what's the picture again? I think the picture is, Hey, you need to contend with these people who are going to end up where? And bondage waiting for judgment. That's the people we need to contend with. 
But now we could just forget everything else, but I just think it's impossible not to go, what? How did, who are these angels? How did they end up in chains? Agreed? So let's do a couple of things. First, if you have a Bible dictionary, grab a Bible dictionary. Have a Bible dictionary. They're all over the place. If you need one, there's a bunch right up there. Let's just do this. Because that's why we have a bunch of Bible dictionaries here, because I like to get you guys involved. Okay. We're going to look up angels. Or angel. All right. Page uh, 55 is the entry for angel. All right, let's get some basic information because this, this all of a sudden just drops angels in on us and we're like, what, what is happening here? What is going on? So agree we need to probably have a, at least a basic idea of what's happening here. And I guess the basic thing we need to do is we have to have some information about angels before we can draw any major conclusions. Does that sound like a good idea? All right, let's go with this. Everybody ready? Angel, page 55. Everybody there? All right, here we go. A member of an order of heavenly beings. All right, let's stop right there. What is significant? Well, if these are heavenly beings, how in the world do they find themselves locked up in chains waiting to be judged? Something significant happened, yes? All right, that's, that's, that's something that we have to consider and pay close attention to, all right? All right. What else do we learn about them? They are superior to human beings in power and intelligence. So even though they have a superiority to humans, they find themselves where? Locked up in chains to be destroyed. That's, once again, going to raise some questions in my mind because the people of Israel ended up being destroyed. Now we have angels who find themselves in the same kind of situation. By nature, angels are what? Spiritual beings, all right, their nature, now that, which is interesting, if they're, if they're spiritual beings, how are they locked in chains? That, that, that would be a question everybody should ask themselves, all right? Their nature is superior to human nature. They have superhuman power and knowledge. They are not, however, all-powerful and all-knowing, all right? Artistic portrayals of angels as winged beings are generally without basis in the Bible. Rarely is an angel described, for exceptions compared to cherubim and seraphim and the living creatures. We could look at the, some of the descriptions there. All right, um, We won't do that at the moment. Angels were created by God and were present to rejoice when he created the world. In their original state, they were holy, But before the creation of the world, some of them rebelled against God and lost their exalted position. Now stop right there. What's a good question we should ask at that moment? What's a good question we should ask ourselves right there? Okay. I think that that's a true statement. I think the question we should ask, well, are these the angels that are being described here in Jude because these are locked up, right? 
So this would seem to imply, or we could ask, so are we saying that the original angels who rebelled against God and lost their position, did, are they the ones who ended up in chains? Okay. Are they the same ones who follow Satan? Right. That, that's the question we have to ask. Now, there's a problem with that, but we'll, we'll at least have to consider, well, are, does this explain where these angels come from? The leading angel in this revolt uh, became the devil, also known as Satan. Another of the fallen angels is named Abaddon or Apollyon, um, the angel of the bottomless pit. Two of the, vast comp- uh, two of the vast company of unfallen angels are named in the Bible. Uh, they, uh, two of the vast company of unfallen angels are named in the Bible. There are archangels Michael, and they give all the scriptures for there, and Gabriel, which is mentioned. Michael had the special task of caring for Israel, and Gabriel communicates special messages to God's servants. The vast armies of unfallen angels delight in praising the Lord continually. Large number of them remain at God's side, ready to do his ever command. Angels in God's presence include the cherubim, seraphim, and living creatures. Unfallen angels are known for their reverence of God and their obedience to his will. Angels represent God in making significant announcements of good news. On his behalf, they also warn of coming dangers. In some cases, they are God's agents in the destruction and judgment of evil. Right? Of special importance in the Old Testament is the angel of the Lord. The angel angel is depicted as a visible manifestation of God himself. We could get into discussion there. All right? Um, Then they talk about the relations to human beings. All right? Not, Not a lot here. Now jump over to the next kind of column here, and you'll see uh, angels fallen. Now let's read a little bit about them. Heavenly beings or divine messengers created by God who rebelled against him and were cast out of heaven. The Lord or prince of these fallen angels is Satan. Uh, fallen angels or messengers continue to serve Satan, but their power is limited judgments await them in the future. All right, then they're getting ready to go into here where they're going to mention something in Jude, but I won't go there right now. Here's what I want you to consider. Whoever these angels are, just go ahead and read a a little bit about them in verse uh, 6. Whoever these angels are in Jude, what what happened to them or what did they not do? They did not keep their first estate. Does everybody see that? All right. This would make us think, well, wait a minute. They didn't keep their first estate. And fallen angels were those who were cast out of heaven. Well, they didn't obviously keep their first estate, correct? So then you would have to ask yourself, wait a minute. So all the angels who fell, did they get locked up into chains? The problem with that is even the dictionary says that these fallen angels continue to do what? Serve Satan. Does everybody see that? Well, what do we know about Satan? The, the Bible describes Satan as a, as a roaring lion who seeketh whom he may devour, that he's active, yes? When I go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what do we see uh, showing up a number of times within the text? We see demonic spirits who are active, yes? We see demonic possession. We see demonic action, correct? 
So, that would seem to indicate that there are some fallen angels that are clearly not locked up in chains waiting for judgment. Agreed? Well, then, okay. Well, if there are some angels who are out roaming about, and there's other fallen angels who are clearly in chains, what's the distinction between them, and why, how did these end up in chains, and these others did not? Because if you can rebel against God and not end up in chains, what in the world did these angels do? All right? Does that make sense? Well, that's what we have to figure out. There's much speculation on what they, they, who they are and what happened here. There's, there is some, awesome, well, there's a lot of weird explanations to this. So let's basically go through this. So what is an angel, simply put? A heavenly being created by God. Correct? Okay. They seem superior to humans. But whoever these angels are, all of that would be true, created by God, superior to humans. They're not all-powerful and all-knowing, but they are superior to us. However, whoever they are, they did not keep their first estate, and they ended up in chains. All right? Now, obviously, the implication is these, these teachers who've come into the church Right? These men who've come into the church, right? they've come into the church, and in a sense, they have not kept their, whoever they are, they've come in and they've lost their standing because they are now turning the grace of God into lasciviousness, and they are denying Christ. So they're going, they're going to be judged as well. So we need to exhort, exhort them, we need to be exhorted to contend with them because they're going to be judged just like the angels are going to be judged. Do you see the correlation? Yes? All right, now, but, so on one hand, I'm tempted to like, well, we, we should just press on because we get the basic idea, but there's just too many questions here. Who are these angels? Or at least I'm curious, who are these angels? Anybody else curious? I want to know how angels end up locked up in chains. Who are them? How, what did they do? Something weird occurred. So we're going to just look at a number of options and see which ones work. All right, everybody ready? All right. Now, a lot of people immediately want to connect this passage to what passage? Does anybody know? If you're doing cross-references. Almost everybody wants to take the Jude passage and, and connect it to another part of Scripture. Second Peter is where everybody usually goes first. So let's go to Second Peter. Don't forget Jude. Don't forget Jude. But go to Second Peter. All right. All right, we're going to start in verse one. First Peter or Second Peter chapter two, verse one. I think we have to go back for context. Uh, most people will argue we have to go back to chapter one, but we're going to start in chapter two. All right. Second Peter chapter two, verse one. Who are these angels? How did they end up locked in chains? That's the question. Everybody ready? All right, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. All right, stop right here. How is this similar to Jude? Well, Jude is talking about people who crept in unawares, who denied what? The Lord. And right, now we have false prophets 
What's similar to these people being described? They secretly introduce uh, false heresies, right? Okay. They deny the Lord. Everybody see that? And they bring about themselves swift destruction. So there's a similarity to Jude right there. Verse 2. And many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not and their damnation slumbereth not. Right? So he's warning against false prophets. Yes? And these false prophets, what's going to happen to these false prophets? They're going to be destroyed. See the similarity? Now, he immediately goes from false prophets and what does he do? He immediately slides over to verse 4, for God spared not the angels. Everybody see that? Very similar. Almost exactly like Jude. Jude's warning, warning about these false teachers who've come into the church, who's denying Christ and turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. And he, and he immediately warns, reminds them about angels. Peter follows the same logic. So you've got two different books, two different writers who wants us to understand something that happened to the angels. What does Peter say happened to the angels? For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Well, that's two books, both warning about false teachers, both use the angels as a cautionary tale. I think someone used that term. Cautionary tale. Then there's something going on. And in both cases, what happens to the angels? They're locked up in chains. How in the world? how, how, How can there be two books talking about angels locked up? Now again, if this is every fallen angel... Well, what would be the problem? Again, let me, I'm just going to continue to repeat this. We can't say that it's every fallen angel, right? Because if it's every fallen angel, well, then Satan would be one of those locked up, and he's not locked up, correct? And that would take care of all the demonic spirits, which they don't appear to be locked up. So this has to be a special group within the fallen group that ends up even locked up. They have to do something really, 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 really messed up here. I mean, these guys have to be like, you know, there's, there's the bad angels and those are the really, like th- these, these are the kids put in that special class for all the troublemakers, right? Okay, like, okay, all the kids in the school are messed up, but these kids are really messed up, right? That's usually where I ended up, okay, right? These are the, everybody's like, don't even look at them, okay? They're, they're the bad kids, okay? That, that, I mean, these angels did something really, really messed up. What in the world happened to them? Well, again, let's read this. This commentary says, we studied this illustration in 2 Peter 2, 4. But Jude seems to add a new dimension to it by associating the fall of the angels with something else. So let's stop. Let's just do this. Um, it, uh, let's do a couple of things. Second Peter, I'm not saying he connects it, but he goes immediately from these angels that are in chains to what? He goes from angels in chains to what in verse 5? 
the flood. He goes immediately from fallen angels to the flood. Does everybody see that? Now, that, that, that gives some people some clues, possibly what happened. Right? I, can't, I can't be dogmatic, but just keep that in mind. What does Jude do? He connects it. He goes immediately from the angels to Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them. Now, please note, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. Hmm. All right. So we have Peter who connects. I'm not saying he connects it, but he places it in correlation with the flood. Jude draws correlation with Sodom and Gomorrah. All right, is there, is there anything? Let's see what they do here. Everybody ready? All right, listen carefully. But Jude seems to add a new dimension to it by associating the fall of the angels with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at verse, in fact, look at verse uh, seven. What, 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 how does verse seven begin? Yeah, in Jude. Even as, does everybody see that? Uh, my translation here, this other translation, likewise, all right, likewise meaning, seeming, it's really how we have to interpret this. Likewise just means like in the same manner or in the same way, Sodom and Gomorrah did this. Is he, is he trying to draw a direct correlation between what these angels did? If so, we may be getting a clue. That's what this commentary, they, they translated in like manner. Now, what they're saying is, okay, if Jude connects it to Sodom and Gomorrah, and the thing with Sodom and Gomorrah is you had people going after strange flesh, right? Then somehow these angels are seen to be, they, they went after strange flesh. That's where some people take this. We'll have to see exactly where they go, all right? Some Bible students believe that Jude was teaching not only a revolt of the angels against God, but also an invasion of earth by those fallen angels. So in other words, not only did the angels revolt against God, some of these angels then decided to, in a sense, try to invade earth or corrupt earth by going after strange flesh. Okay. Well, we're going to, I'm going to give a possible idea. We'll have, I think it's, a, there's a certain meaning in, for Sodom and Gomorrah, and there's a possible uh, special meaning for the angels, right? So, where everyone tends to end up, any Bible college, any seminary anyone goes to, you're going to spend a, lo- a pretty much a long time in Genesis 6. And this is where all the arguing usually begins in Bible college or seminary. Because nobody agrees. Right? Everybody ready? I'm not saying this is a perfect. I'm not saying this is perfect. I'm saying that we have to consider what happens here. Because something happens bad here. Right? It came to pass. When men begin to multiply in the face of the earth. And daughters were born unto them. I think we can all understand verse 1. Right? What happens in verse 1? More and more people appear on earth, and they have what? Daughters are born to them. They have, they have daughters. So there's all these girls being born, right? That's, 
So far, so good. That's why God destroys the world. Okay, no, okay, I'm, jo- I'm, jo- I'm joking. Okay, all right. So you have, you have all these daughters being born to them, all right? Okay, I know like almost every, I got all the women. There's more women here this morning, so no matter what I say, I'm going to get myself in trouble here, but okay. Now the son, now please note that phrase, the sons of God. Everybody see that? See the daughters of men that they were fair. All right. Now that's an old way of saying the sons of God sees the daughters of men and they think that they are hot. They think they are attractive. And what do they do when they see that they are attractive? What does it say? They, they married them. They married them. Okay, that sounds like, oh, what a wonderful love story. Now, the question is, who are the sons of God? Some people believe the sons of God are angels. Well, that's where they kind of go. Now, but I kind of stopped us from reading that because I wanted to work through this. Now, if that's true, then you've got angelic beings... Right? Who are obviously fallen in some way, shape, or form, now having relations with the daughters of men. Now, what would be the problem with that? This would be the strange flesh. You have spiritual being trying to engaging in some kind of relationship with a physical female and then produce children. That means the children would no longer be what? truly human, therefore corrupting the human line, right? This is the argument. Well, why would that be significant? Well, Genesis 3, the fall has occurred, right? Now, if God's going to redeem humans, they have to be humans. And if they're no longer humans, then nobody could be redeemed. Now, Many people would say this. Now, some people say that's the craziest thing. That's Greek mythology. There's no way that's in the Bible. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I do agree that it it seems far-fetched. However, we've got angels put in chains for doing something, right? And so, and not only that, after this occurs, look look how we, look how this starts. It's so weird, right? Okay. You, you just have this idea that uh, the daughters are, are pretty, the sons of God thinks they're pretty, and they marry them, all right? So that sounds like a, a, a wonderful love story, right? Oh, someone make a Hallmark movie, hurry, right? It, it's wonderful, you know? Isn't that great? And then all of a sudden in the next verse, and then the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with men for that he is... Also his flesh at his day shall be at 120 years. Whoa, why did God get so... He interrupts this beautiful love story and he's all upset. What made God so mad? Now you either connect it to the previous verses or you go with what's after. What, what, is, what does he say afterwards? There were giants in the earth. Whoa, okay, wait, wait. where did the giants come from? Where did the giants come from? Some believe the giants are what? As a result of the union between the sons of God and the daughters of men. I I don't know. 
Uh, they were giants in the earth in those days. Also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, that they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. All right, well, whoever these, these people are, there's something special about them, yes? They become mighty, renowned, and, and then look what, so right after this, in fact, the very, in verse 4, the last thing mentioned in verse 4 is what? The children of the sons of God and the daughters of men. That's the very last thing mentioned in verse 4. Agreed? And then immediately, what, is, what does God do in verse 5? He saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of the heart were only evil continually. And, he, and it repented the Lord that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him in his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man, beast, creeping thing, fowls of the air, for it repented me that I have made them. He is upset. It seems weird that he got upset in the middle of a love story. Agreed? I'm I'm the only one? That's kind of a weird thing to get that upset about. Some people believe, no, 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 no. The sons of God, they're just from the godly line and the daughters of men are from the ungodly line, right? So that's just the mixture of, of the believer and the unbeliever marrying each other. That's pretty strong judgment for just the mixture of the believer and the unbeliever marrying because that happens, that continues to happen from what? <laughs> It can it happen. It still happens. So like God got very upset because believers started marrying with unbelievers and he decided I'm going to wipe out everyone. And then as soon as they get off the boat, they just go right back to doing the exact same thing. That seems odd, right? Okay. The clearly the flood wasn't there to eradicate depravity because the people on the boat were depraved. So that doesn't make sense. So why would he kill everyone? Well, he would kill anyone as a result of the human line being corrupted, right? Now you have these angel humans walking around, which is going to corrupt the human line. And the only way he can redeem the human line is they have to be truly human. That, that's the only possible explanation because, because what does he do with the angels immediately after this if this is what this is referring to? These angels who engage in this activity, if that's what's happening in Genesis 6, what immediately happens to them according to 2 Peter and Jude? They're put in chains, reserved for judgment, so they can never engage in such activity again. That would make sense. Then the flood would have accomplished what it would accomplish something, yes? Because any other way, the flood doesn't accomplish anything. or took upon human form, right? which we know they can do sometimes, right? We see that in, in the Bible. And then in, in, had relations with the daughters of men, and they produced children. Now that, I, I, I don't know that. <laughs> That's a good question. That's a great question, but I don't know. I, I, don't, know the, I don't know the answer. Put it this way, God knew. I don't know what they knew. They may, they may have known something was special about their children because it seems to say that there's something special about their children, yes? They became mighty men, men of old, men of renown. There was something special about these children. They may have known something. I don't know if they would have known. The prob- I would probably say most likely they didn't know. That would, that's just speculation. That's just speculation. But clearly, that's a great question, but I, I wish I had a better answer. All I can say is something bad happens here. 
And if it is the angels and Jude and Peter, it makes perfect sense that they're locked up. Yes? I'm not saying it's perfect, and we'll have to stop there. That's a possibility. That's a possibility. There's going to be people who argue against that possibility, but all the arguments against this possibility don't explain to me the flood, right? Again, most, a lot of people say that the sons of God were the godly line, the daughters of men were the ungodly line, and their unbelievers come together. Well, unbelievers come to, or believers and unbelievers come together, and they produce children who are mighty and are men of renown. And God's like, okay, I got to wipe them all out. But that doesn't fix anything because believers and unbelievers start engaging in relationships with each other almost immediately. And they don't make mighty children, right? They, they, and you just see it in Genesis, Exodus. I mean, over and over, God tells Israel, hey, don't let your sons marry them. They do so over and over and over and over. I mean, it just happens throughout the entire Old Testament. Solomon, same thing. All, all the strange women that he had, in other words, unbelieving women. It's just, it, it never stops. So why would you flood the world because an unbeliever and believers married each other? That seems really weird. Does everyone agree? The flood seems to indicate that something really bad had gone wrong. Really, really, really bad. And you say, well, the people were really wicked. I don't know. Have you watched the news recently? I don't know. Have you looked in the mirror recently? We're all pretty bad too, right? So that doesn't, that, I mean, yeah, something weird happened in Genesis 6. I'm not going to say we could ever be dogmatic, but if that's what happened, I can explain why these angels are in chains. Because they were, they were going after strange flesh. And they get punished. And everything, all their offspring was destroyed. Then, in a sense, they started over. The world started over after that, preserving the human line. So then Christ could come as a man and do what? Redeem fallen men. Does that make sense? All right. I'm not saying it's perfect. So those online who want to start arguing, just wait till next week because I'm going to try to present every possible side to this. All right. Some people don't believe the angels in chains refer to angels. They get refers to people. So I don't know how you come to that conclusion, but it's a metaphorical chains. Okay. It's metaphorical chains. It gets all weird, but we'll, we'll look into that. All right. We'll stop right there. All right. Lord God, we come before you this uh, morning. Very difficult chapter, very difficult book, and a very difficult subject. Uh, just give us the ability and desire to meditate on this this week. Think about it. And uh, whatever happened, Lord, the main thing is we want to be challenged that we contend for those who have turned from the truth so that they will not be destroyed like the examples that have been provided. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...